Amen. Thank you all so much for worshiping. Thank you for giving to our church and to God's kingdom. And uh, speaking of kingdoms, I hope you have a Bible. And if you do, we're going to be in Genesis 10 this morning to start off. Uh, we'll be turning to the very end of the Bible at the, later on in our message uh, to Revelation. You can put a bookmark there if you need to. Uh, probably don't need to bookmark the last book, right? So we'll find our way there in a little while. Um, we're going to have a great time and an important uh, time in God's Word and going from literally from one end to another. Um, I think all of you probably remember uh, maybe in class or in school or maybe in like a workshop of some kind, um, maybe it was in a church group, I don't know, where uh, everybody's trying to get to know each other and there's someone, uh, you know, the leader or the teacher um, is trying to prompt people to talk and talk about themselves. Uh, so kind of they, they instruct us to go around the room uh, and kind of, hey, tell everybody a little bit about yourself and it's kind of awkward. Uh, at least everybody has to participate. So it's going to be awkward for everybody, uh, but it's, you know, the whole let's stare at one person, uh, you know, until they tell us whatever they're supposed to tell us. That can be a little unnerving. I don't know about y'all, uh, especially for introverts like me, but uh, I don't think anybody likes being put on the spot, even if it is necessary sometime. Uh, I know we probably have done this before in a church setting before, you know, and if I ask you to do it, you, you say, well, didn't you say that was not fun to do? No, it's not fun to do, but sometimes... It, it, it is important. Um, but often in these sorts of deals, one of the questions, beside a few personal details, you know, hey, what's your name? Where are you from? And, 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 and what are you here for? How'd you get here? Uh, you know, sometimes there's a, a prompt, hey, what's a fun fact about yourself? What's a random, uh, you know, interesting fact that you could give us um, that gives insight to who you are or what kind of person you're, you know, you are, what you're into, what your, you know, interests are. Uh, but one particular question that I recall uh, from these group exercises or from surveys I've taken before, questionnaires that I've always found extremely challenging and that, uh, that, that, that I put way, way too much thought into whenever they came, across, came up, whether it was in school or college or through the years. Um, and, and you probably remember these from, from these sorts of exercises. Uh, the, the, the prompt, describe yourself with one word. Now, if you've ever been asked to do that, that's not a really easy thing to do. And, and maybe you can describe someone else with one word. Probably not a good word sometimes, right? That, that's, a, that's a joke. Um, but, uh, or maybe, hey, you, you got a good word for somebody. Hey, you know, they're, they're awesome or they're really caring or they're kind. But it's, all, it's hard, right, unless you just want to be real, you know, real arrogant and say, hey, you know, I'll, I'll describe myself with all these great accolades. But it's hard to describe yourself or describe anybody with one word. And, and the only fun part of the group uh, in these group settings is there's always that person that doesn't listen to the prompt and they describe themselves with multiple words. And you're sitting there thinking, I rack my brain. With, for one word, and you just gave me a whole sentence, and that's not really fair. Um, but but don't worry, you know nobody nobody's going to ask you for your one word today. Um, and if you're thinking about a one word for somebody else, you might need to ask for forgiveness if that's not a good one. Um, but um, I'll give you a minute for that later on. But I, I do I do want us to think about this with regards to the Bible. Uh, now, I know this is incredibly reductive to do this with the Bible. I mean, how, how could you reduce the Bible and all of its words down to one? Uh, but, uh, you know, it would be hard to do that for anybody, let alone for something as complex and as, as, as cohesive as the Bible. But, you know, could you do that? Could you uh, reduce the Bible down to one word? Is there a word, is there one word that captures the Bible from cover to cover. And let's say that for the sake of this exercise, let's say we're not going to use proper nouns or names. So I know that you know, the cheeky answer would be God or Jesus or heaven. Let's just say we're going to do this. And, and let's say we're going to try to do this. And we're not going to use names. So we can't just say, well, Jesus. We can't just say heaven. Uh, but all things that you think about, what would be the concept or the idea, a single word that you think captures or encapsulates the Bible's message from cover to cover. So if you had to guess, uh, I think all of us would come up with a, with, with a, a good list of appropriate words um, that, would, that would really get close to the main theme of the Bible. I'm sure if you were to do this, maybe you're already thinking about this, uh, you might come up with words like salvation or grace or love, commandments. Uh, you might think about sin or faith, repentance, obedience. I'm sure if we went around the room, uh, I'm sure some all of our lists, if we combine them, would include most of these words, if not all of these words. And they're all really good shots at, hey, this is the word that you know encapsulates the Bible's message or what the Bible's all about, the theme of the Bible, the idea the Bible is really focused on. Uh, all these are top contenders. But there's one that's not on that list 
that uh, at least I'm going to propose is even more indicative of the Bible's overall message that reflects something going on at the heart of both God and man. Because if you think about the, the screen that we've got in front of us, the first part of it uh, focuses on God's message to us. Hey, you know, this is God's plan of salvation. It's God's grace. It's God's love. These are God's commandment. Whereas the latter part focuses on our sin, uh, the importance of us believing in faith, us repenting, us obeying. Uh, so it's easy to focus on one or the other, right? Well, this is what the Bible says about God. This is what the Bible says about people. But is there a word that captures both God's agenda and our agenda? Is there a word that kind of captures what's going on at both spiritually and physically in this world? Is there a word that, that gets close? Now, clearly I'm leading us down a particular path, but I will argue that there is a word that shows up throughout the Bible. It's all over the Bible. You just haven't maybe paid attention to it before. Uh, that offers us a path from one end to another. Uh, and it's around this idea. It's around this concept. It's around this reality that God and people intersect again and again and again around this certain word. Now, you probably check the title and you kind of know where we're going with this, but the word that I'm going to propose is really at the center of the Bible's message is kingdom. At the center of, uh, of the, what's going on in the world and what's going on from God to us uh, is this idea of a kingdom. Now, I think that there, if it's not the definitive word, I think it's on the short list. It's in the top five or even maybe the top three, there probably isn't a more repeated word in terms of substantial meaning, in terms of getting the narrative from one end to the other. There probably isn't a word that comes up more with importance behind it than the word kingdom. Whether it's the Hebrew form or the Greek form from Genesis to Revelation, and I know everybody likes to pronounce word, look at words they can't pronounce. Uh, the Hebrew version is mama laka. You should try saying that a couple hundred times. And then the Greek word is basileia. They are all over both Old and New Testament. This word kingdom. And the word kingdom literally means pertaining to the reign and the realm of a king. So this word kingdom is used in reference to God's reign and God's realm over the world as king. And it's also a reference to the different regimes of man, the different regimes of this world. So we see it works on two different planes, right? It works on God's existence and God's rule and God's sovereignty, but also it works on mankind's rule and reign over the face of the earth. And, and what we find in the Bible is the clear presentation of God's kingdom being superior and sovereign over the world from the very beginning, yet it's rarely acknowledged by, uh, uh, by the world. Um, people hardly ever recognize it as the greater kingdom because they're otherwise engaged and otherwise invested in all the little kingdoms that are vying for control of the world while all along God is in control. I'm sure you can already suspect that this would spark some conflict, that all of us are down here thinking we're in charge, but meanwhile God is over all of us and he's the one who's always been and always will be in charge, yet we don't pay attention to that and we rarely acknowledge that and all of us are competing for fame and recognition and, and power and attention, yet God is the one that deserves it all and has it all already. You can imagine there's some conflict there, right? And of course, that's exactly the case. From the very beginning of humanity, from the very dawn of society and civilization, you can see, and we can see, the struggle uh, between following God's plans and going in our own direction. It centers around this notion of whose kingdom we are seeking and serving and whose kingdom we are looking for and living for. As in whose kingdom do we put at the top of our list every day as we walk out of our homes and start our busy days. At the heart of the Bible story, there are two opposing kingdoms. There are two kingdoms. The, the, the kingdom of an infinite, perfect, almighty God and the kingdom of finite, falling, frail people. And all the friction, all the tension, all the frustrations that befalls the world from the very beginning has stemmed from people choosing the wrong kingdom. I'll let you guess which one is the wrong kingdom or which ones are the wrong kingdoms. I know it's reductive to funnel the Bible down this summary, this to, to the summary statement, but if you know the Bible, if you know the story it tells from beginning to end, isn't that pretty accurate? And here's the thing about the kingdoms we serve. At the center of whichever kingdom we prioritize is a king. 
They may be acknowledged as a king or they may be people like us that just think they are kings or think they are in control. Whereas the kingdom of God has always been under the control of a single entity, the kingdoms of man have been a hot mess for thousands of years. From the very beginning, the kingdom of God has had one benevolent king on its throne, but the kingdom of man has seen a much different story. There's been an ever-revolving door of various kinds of king. And not all of those kings have been malevolent and sinister or bumbling or incompetent. Even the ones that meant their best, though, pale in comparison to the king of kings in every possible way. And more often than not, the kingdoms of this earth, the kingdoms of man have done nothing but lead people away from, in opposition to, in resistance towards the kingdoms, the kingdom of God. Isn't it true? Isn't that the story the Bible tells? Isn't that the story of humanity in general? Whether it was their intention or not, it hasn't really mattered. The nature of all the kingdoms of man, all are inclined on this trajectory against the guidance of God, against the away from the nurture of God our King and our Lord. Now, I don't want to belabor the point, but I do want to show you why I think this really is so core to the Bible story and why I think it is the, 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 why I think the Bible's greatest message comes from this conflict that is chronicled and detailed across its pages across history. Uh, we could spotlight where all the turmoil and tension begins, which is in the Garden of Eden. Uh, God creates a world to bless and to be good to. He puts creatures in his image at the center of it. He calls them to trust in him, to delight in him. He put us at the center. All we had to do was return the favor and put God at the center. Recognize that God is spreading his jurisdiction beyond the heavens into this brand new world, into a world made for us. But we know the story. Adam and Eve fall for the lie that God could not be trusted, that God was withholding things from them, even though he gave them the world. Literally, he gave them the world. They fell for the lie that God could not be trusted, and thus they disregarded his commandments. They did not trust him as good, and they fail greatly. There in the first act of rebellion is the moment where things split, where the two timelines converge or diverge. This is where people defected from God's kingdom and where where mankind establishes its own efforts to reign over and enlarge its own realm, its own kingdoms, and build its own kingdoms opposed to God. As the world became populated, families became tribes, and tribes became fledgling nations. And even though some retained a consciousness towards God and were sensitive to his sovereignty, most completely disregarded this and not but a few generations removed from Eden. A few hundred years later, the vast majority of the world was totally opposed to the idea that there was anything greater than the brick and mortar, the here and now, stakes placed in the ground, and Boundaries carved out by men. All the while, God was relentlessly trying to get the world's attention using the remnant of those who believed uh, and whose hearts were aligned to him, uh, but it hardly registered on most radars. While not all man's efforts to organize and power up and advance himself was overtly, were overtly defiant towards God, there's one story that reflects the motivations that really fueled them all but is really front and center in this one particular story. But what's at front and center in this story is really fueling all of the stories of the kingdoms of man. So we find that story in Genesis 10, if you've opened your Bible there. And most of you, uh, your Bibles have headings put in by man. Uh, The heading in chapter 10, or often the heading in chapter 10, is the table of nations, or the nations that descend from Noah. Uh, This is where the world that is all these years later really began taking shape. From the three sons of Noah, the world began to populate. From the Middle East, they move in all different directions. And that's where the world that is took shape. Because this chapter sort of charts out all the different directions that people were going in as they began to outgrow that concentrated Middle Eastern uh, territory they originated in. But the the narrative sort of focuses on a particular kingdom and a particular king for just a little bit. It introduces us the first bona fide kingdom of this world. And that's found in Genesis 10 verse number 6 is where we're introduced to this particular family. 
The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Sheba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, Saptaga. Good thing you don't have to read those all the time, right? The sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. And, and verse 8 is where we introduce to our guy, our king. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. So he became really the first famous person, the first person that everybody knew his name. Everybody had uh, reference to, people would, would compare great people to Nimrod. In the beginning of his, and there's the word, kingdom. First mention of the word kingdom, but the first of many, many, many mentions of the word. The beginning of his kingdom was a place called Babel. You've heard of Babel before probably, but Babel was just the beginning. There was Eric, there was Akkad, which is Akkadia, which is really what the secular world refers to his empire as. The Akkadian Empire was the world's first major kingdom. And it says, in the land of Shinar, and, and he goes on, it says in verse 11, that from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. Now, if you read the Old Testament, these names show up again and again and again. Nineveh is a great city. Way years later, it was a part of the Assyrian Empire. But all of those empires, all those kingdoms stem from this first and original kingdom. So Nimrod was the world's first major king, and his kingdom spanned... Uh, the Middle East as we know it, but the heart of it was a place called, a city called Babel. Uh, you've probably heard of Babel before. You probably know where this is going in the next chapter. So this chapter tells us the different directions that people went in, but the story focuses on Nimrod for just a bit and on his kingdom because his kingdom sort of wears on its sleeves the motives that were driving them all. So if you, want, if you wonder, why is Nimrod getting the attention? Why does Nimrod get focused on, even though there are hundreds of names in this chapter? It's because Nimrod and his kingdom sort of embody the spirit of all the kingdoms of the world. And God's to use this one kingdom to make an example of, but also this one kingdom to really focus in on and say, hey, this is what's wrong with the world. And this is why you cannot trust the way of this world, the leaders of this world, because they are not always looking for your best and never really are looking for your best. So over in Genesis 11, we get the glimpse, we get a glimpse of Nimrod's ambition when building his kingdom. We get a reflection of what lies at the core of all worldly kingdoms. They do not defer to God's rule, and they seek to establish and exert their own rule. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 5, let's read that familiar story. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. So this shows us that this was the beginning of you know, civilization as we know it, as they begin to build up this kingdom. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city. A tower whose top is to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth, lest we be nobodies, and lest we die without having made a name for ourselves. But the man who had made a name for himself, Nimrod, said, Hey, y'all listen to me. Y'all follow me. I'll lead us in a direction with a motive that's going to make sure nobody ever forgets us. Little did he know, nobody would ever forget them for all the wrong reasons. Verse 5 says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the story goes that God scatters the people, confuses and confounds their languages. Verse number 8, The Lord scattered them abroad from the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, it is the na its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So the Tower of Babel, as it's called, was the crowning achievement of this earliest civilization. If you study ancient history, it turns out these sorts of towers were quite common in those days. Yet this particular one was the first of its kind. And perhaps the most ambitious. The Tower of Babel uh, was a structure called a ziggurat. 
ziggurat, Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T, and its function in the ancient world, these functions of these ziggurats were like temples uh, where people would go to worship. Nimrod's tower was a shot across the bow of any god that may be out there. It was an assertion of mankind that the only god we serve is the one we see in the mirror. Nimrod's tower was a declaration of humanity. We are free from divine accountability, from divine responsibility. We are embracing autonomy as in I only answer to myself. We are embracing independence. We are not going to submit to God. We don't need him. He only wants to hold us back. So so don't you see the Tower of Babel was the rebellion of the Garden of Eden taken to an extreme? The Tower of Babel proves that what Noah was doing was child's play. Nimrod saw Adam's defiance and raised him tenfold and led the whole world in an international breakaway from faith and submission to God. So don't you see, Adam was just the start of it. Eden was just the start of it. The Tower of Babel was that moment where it was clear to be known across the world. This world is not leading anybody in the right direction and its leaders cannot be trusted. Its kingdoms cannot be trusted. The story goes that God intervened in efforts to stave off its concentrated rebellion in hopes to see the world come to its senses and with intention to try to call out people from, uh, that, from the group to trust in Him and shine a light of warning to those that were uh, in the darkness. But make no mistake, the unfinished Tower of Babel casts its shadow over the whole world across all of time. Now, whether we share in its overt agenda or not, whether our leaders quote Nimrod or not, the world around us is still committed to this overrated dream. As was said in verse number 4, come let us make a name for ourselves. That is the heart. That is the core. That is the spirit of this age. Come let us make a name for ourselves. Let us glorify our name. That's the aspiration. That's the underlying uh, uh, nature of the world. Is this refusal to share any glory, not defer to God nor anyone else. And this is the story that history has told. Every nation, small or large, short-lived or legendary in its tenure and fame, every nation is driven by this lust for glory and this lust for fame. Every kingdom and ultimately all of us are being funneled down this path and encouraged to adopt this same approach. And really, if you read the Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament is just one story after another of God keeping the kingdoms of the world honest, breaching them, challenging them, exposing them. And to counter this, he does in fact organize his own people and start his own nation, a God-fearing, God-honoring people. He takes the family of Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to be your king. You don't have any land yet. You don't have any power yet, but just trust in me. When people say, who's your king? Point up, I am your king. Your, your, your peasants, your wanderers, but I'm your king. He positions them on this chessboard of the world and he moves Abraham along, advancing him and his family against the odds. And, and there's this amazing story that you should read sometime in Genesis 14 where Abraham and his servants unintentionally trying to save a family member, they disrupt the kingdom that was dominating his day. Now everybody in 2023 knows the name of Abraham. Everybody around the world, Abraham's name is great, right? The Bible says it would be. Nobody in the world has, has almost, almost everyone in the world has heard of Abraham. People point to him as the founder of their faith from all corners of the world. But if you would have been alive in Abraham's day, Abraham would have been a nobody. But you would have all known King Ketelelmer. He would have been the guy that would be the Nimrod of his day. He was kind of the successor of Nimrod. Genesis 14 tells us that Abraham and his servants overcome this king and nobody would ever think about or talk about this king ever again. His kingdom was forgotten. And all these years later, no one remembers the king, but everybody remembers the wanderer. Everybody remembers Abraham. You get a sense of what God was doing throughout history. 
Against the odds, Abraham rallies a bunch of unknown tribes to save his family and overcome this kingdom. And these are the stories you read about in the Old Testament, where God topples kingdoms through surprising methods and sends a message to the world regarding who is in control. Because what's the, what's the message of Abraham defeating this king? That King Ketelelmer, you aren't really in charge. Do you get that? The message to King Nimrod, you aren't really in charge. You think you are? In fact, this little episode where Abraham takes on these kings is really a preview of a bigger showdown. Abraham's descendants become slaves in Egypt. Y'all know the story. God literally uses the people of Israel to upend an empire. The story goes that God allowed his people to become slaves. He sends them to Egypt, makes them slaves, so that he might display his superiority against the godless empire of Egypt. And show his saving power by bringing his people out in victory. And as you've read that story before, you know that it became well known. And the fame of that moment was spread all across the world. Israel was feared. They had no standing army. They had no visible recognized king. But clearly though, God was their king. He was not to be contested. Even though they were a different kind of kingdom and he was a different kind of king, we read in the book of Exodus and all throughout the Old Testament things like this. The people have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm as they realized that people were scared of Israel because of its king, because of its God. Years later, when they come to take, take the promised land, a woman named Rahab meets the spies at the city of Jericho and says, as soon as we heard you were coming, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So, Israel was carried along by God to prove that he was the one true king, but to demonstrate to the world that, that what happens to a people group who exalts and honors him as king and doesn't fall for the ways of this world. But as the story goes, Israel is also used to show what happens when the people who know better fall away, where they turn from their God to something less than their God. After they are given their own land, God drives out the occupants that took it while they were in slavery. They can't help but come under the spell of the world. The way of the kingdoms of man, it it slowly casts its shadow over all of us. And even Israel cast off accountability, cast off responsibility towards God. They remove him from the center and they put their own idols, their own selves at the center. And if you read the book of Judges, they begin this cycle where it becomes clear that God was going to use Israel to show the folly of this behavior. He wasn't going to just let them walk away. He was going to stay engaged if only to show the better way by contrast. Judges 3 verse 7 and 8 give us a little bit of a snapshot. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hands of this guy, Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. We don't know who he is. Nobody knows who he is. But here's what happens. When they turned away from God as their king, they traded one king for another. You get the message? They downgraded from being a kingdom of God to being just another kingdom, and they suffered for it. And you could summarize all of ancient Israel's tenure as a major kingdom of this world with that statement. It was a constant back and forth of serving God, serving some, some lesser other God, making concessions they felt like they had to, but losing far more as a result. Listen, Israel had a good reason every time they turned away from God. They, they did it because they had to. Oh, God wouldn't let them work on Saturdays. God was trying to withhold them from this. They needed to make a deal with this king and this God because they were trying to get through the rainy, or get through the drought or get through the famine. They had good reasons. But everything they gained by making those concessions, they lost far much more in the process. For a short while, God compromised with them. He gave them a man to rule them, hopefully to keep their faith in him. Yet all that did was further shift their passion from God's greater kingdom to their earthly kingdom. And Israel became just like everybody else, just another kingdom of man. 
As great as David were, as, as was, as great as Solomon was, even they were not immune to the world's toxic nature. And here's the thing. The way of this world, the drift of this world, the trajectory of this world, it's like a front that comes through. It sweeps every generation. It sweeps through every society and every culture. None of us are going to evade it. It's like when you watch the Weather Channel or the weather on your local news. And there's a cold front coming through, driven by a low pressure. And you know, hey, there's no way we're going to avoid this. There's no way we're going to avoid this front. It's coming through and it's going to make all of us, it's going to affect all of us. There's nothing you can do except take shelter. And that's what God calls Israel to do every time. Hey, when you feel the drift, when you sense temptation, take refuge in me. Fight the drift by leaning on me, continually recommitting to me. David taught Solomon this so, such an important proverb. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not, under no circumstances, lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. But if you do not trust in Him, and if you lean away to the left or right, your path will not be straight. They will be as crooked and curvy as you could ever imagine. When you put your kingdom first, when you put this world's kingdoms first... You'll never be better off for it. The prophet Elijah stood up to Israel when it was riding the fence. And he says to them in 1 Kings, Elijah came near. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. Eventually, Israel made a choice. And it wasn't a good one. They quit pretending and they just went all in on themselves. But God was in control and God sold them into slavery once again to an offspring of the old kingdom of Babel, to the kingdom of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. God raised up a prophet during those days named Daniel who would interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The king who conquered the world needed a slave boy to quell his anxieties at night. Ironic, isn't it? It was during that time that Daniel interpreted these visions and he saw all these different beasts that took turns ruling the world. And, and that really is, is symbol, symbolizing, symbolizes just what the kingdoms of man are. They're beasts that plod along, divide and conquer and make a mess and they never accept responsibility. They never take accountability. They just do what beasts do. They make a mess. They, they divide and conquer and they rule for a while until something stronger comes along. It's just like your animals at home. You can't teach them to stop making messes. And they always expect you to clean up their mess. They never do it themselves. That's the way of this world. That's what the kingdoms of this world do. They're just beasts. Years later, if you want to turn over to Revelation 13 with me. Years later, a disciple of Jesus sees a vision similar to Daniel about the future of the world. And essentially what John, what essentially what John sees is the kingdoms of man resisting the kingdoms of God, the kingdom of God. And how does he describe the kingdoms of this world? He describes them as a beast, just like Daniel. He talks about those who are spellbound by the nature of this world as paying homage to the beast, having a mark of that beast on their heads, a state of mind, a way of life they're committed to. Revelation 13 describes the way the world fell under, falls under these beasts. It says, I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns and all his horns with ten crowns and on his heads a blasphemous name. There's this fantastical language used to say that the kingdoms of this world have a way of spellbounding people. They have a way of catching everyone's attention and making everyone think, wow, look how great they are. Look how mighty they are. Look how accomplished they are. John sees this beast and it looks like all sorts of different animals that, he is, that, that Daniel had saw. There's leopards, there's bears, there's lions, there's dragons. It says in verse 4, They worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. They worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? As in, hey, this is, this is it. 
This is as good as it gets. This is what rules the world. And everybody's generation has a different beast that rules the day. We do. Our ancestors did. Every generation has a beast that rules the world. And every generation thinks there's nothing better than that beast. Nothing stronger, nothing greater. But I want you to look at verses 11 through 17. I want you to focus in on what John sees, the, the situation of the world. And, and, and you could say that John is looking at the future of the world, but I think John is just seeing a picture of how the world always is. Every generation basically repeats this cycle where there's a beast that rules and people fall in line. And they're, they're mesmerized by him, all the wonders, all the signs. They're, they're caught uh, in all of what this beast does. And it says down in verse 16 and 17, I want you to focus on this. It says, he causes all, both great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, people go way, way deep with this stuff, and there's something, there's something there, but, but I want to focus on this. The reason the people worship the beast, listen, the reason they worship the beast, the reason people put the kingdom of the beast first, the reason people put the kingdom of the world first, they're not nefarious reasons. They're, they're not satanic worshiping people. They're people that are just trying to survive, that are looking for recognition, that are competing to make a name for themselves. Do you see what we're going with this? These people, they're not worshiping the beast because, wow, he's greater than God. They're worshiping the beast because that's the way they live. And if they don't worship the beast, if they don't worship the kingdom of the man, of man, if they don't put the kingdom of this world first, they don't live. This passage is used to condemn the extremely, is usually used to condemn the extremely wicked and sinful people, but it really hits all of us because what happened in Genesis 11 repeats in Revelation 13. It repeats throughout history. This affinity for and allegiance toward the kingdoms of this world. A dreadful kingdom at that. But we don't, but we don't know what, what we feel stuck and tra- helpless and trapped. People say, well, I don't know what else to do. I mean, I've got to live, I've got to eat, I've got to make a name for myself. If I want to have anything and be anybody, this is the way. If we want to make them happy or her happy or him happy, ourselves happy, we feel like there's no other options. But zoom out a few thousand feet. Allow yourself to go forward in time and look back at your lifetime, at the lifetimes that have come before us. Does it ever pay to live for these worldly kingdoms? Does it ever pay to live for these worldly systems? Don't all they do is extract joy from us? Don't all they do is take a great toll on us and they leave us empty and hopeless? 2,000 years ago, after Israel had lost its way and fell under the beast of its day, Rome, the remnant of God's people were wondering if clinging to him was worth it. What good was resisting? What good did living for God, uh, living as if God is king would do? What good did considering how you treat one another do what good was living for eternity doing really but into that world a preacher and a prophet like none other came and his message was so peculiar his message wasn't you've lost your way turn back to god and his law his message wasn't you need to go to the temple and 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 sacrifice what was his message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How did Jesus introduce his message? That you all have been living under the power of and allegiance to with affinity for the wrong kingdoms and the wrong kings. And if you want to be on God's side, you've got to repent of all that, turn away from all that because the kingdom of heaven is here and only those with their hearts set on it will be saved. When they heard kingdom, they heard a politically charged word. But Jesus had no army. He was not some revolutionary. But his ministry made it clear. His kingdom was not of this world. But how we see this world and live in this world reflects if his kingdom is our true reality and our future home. Now to close out, I'd like for you to flip over to Matthew 6 with me. Uh, This is a very important passage of Scripture. 
And I think it resonates with us so powerfully uh, on, between these two really uh, uh, fantastical passages of, about the Tower of Babel and the beast of the end times. Jesus calls people to not give in to the pleasure of this world, but come. But people come to him and they say, Jesus, how can we survive? How can we make it? How will we endure if we don't play by the world's rules? If you're telling us to turn away from the world and turn away from his kingdoms and do not you know, be aligned with or be focused on or living for, I mean, how are we going to make it? And listen, Jesus' response most definitely insulted people when he said what he said to them. And it may insult you, but if you think about it for just a few moments, it just might save you. In Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus just bluntly says it after beating around the bush for a while. He says, no one can serve two masters. You either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, and mammon is just the substance of this world. You cannot serve two kings. You cannot serve two masters. And that seems a little bit absolute. That seems a little bit hardcore, I know, but that's Jesus' message to us. And, And people say, well, the reason why I bow to this master is I've got to eat. I've got to live. I've got to have stuff. I've got to be able to make it. And, and listen, they weren't concerned about the stuff that we're worried about. We worry about first world problems. We worry about, we worry about things they never even thought about worrying about. He says to them in verse 25, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body not more than clothing? And come on, I know what you worry about. You worry about paying bills and you worry about having enough to get by or having for your, you know, your future retirement or whatever you're, you're worried about at this point in your life. All of us have legitimate concerns. They had legitimate concerns. If they didn't bow to Rome and didn't seek first the kingdom of Rome, they might not eat. They might not have jobs and if you think this is insensitive to us I mean imagine how they felt and he wasn't telling them to be irresponsible he wasn't telling them to quit work he was just trying to see where their focus was at and expose where their heart was at and and this might be the most insensitive thing that Jesus ever said to people that were worried because if I came to your house if you asked me to come over and pray with you and you said Justin I'm having a hard time paying this, getting through this, you know, he, this, they're sick, I'm sick. If I came to you and I said, let's go outside. Look at the birds. If I said it to you, you probably would slap me in the face or tell me to leave and never come back. I mean, really, let's look at the birds. Did they ever worry? No. Look at the flowers. Did they ever work? No. And God always takes care of them. Huh. They're just the best birds they can be and the best flowers they can be. And they never have to worry at all. So he says, let's get back to earth, guys. You are made in God's image. You have a responsibility and you have an accountability to him. You have a calling and a purpose to live for him. If you do the best you can do in the world that he's put you in, you don't have to worry about all the world that all that the world tells you you've got to worry about. You've chosen to. You've put yourself under that authority. You've put yourself under that master, and that's why you can't get free from it. He says in verse 31, Therefore do not worry, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all those things the Gentiles seek, and your heavenly Father knows what you need. He knows you need all those things. He's not telling you, oh, you can live without that. He knows what you need. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Is it that simple? Is it? Because a lot of us, I think we try this, but we're still very worried, very strung out, very stressed out, very burnt out, afraid of everything that might go wrong in the world. 
Jesus hears your, your fear, your worry, your disbelief, and he says, I got, I got your answer. Seek first. Trust always. Seek first. Trust always. This may sound too simple, but how has all the complicated prescriptions of the world made it work for you? By doing the way the world, living the way the world's told you to live, all that's done for us is make us stressful and fearful and addicted and greedy and giving us bad attitudes and broken homes. Right? All that we've accomplished by living the way the world's told us to live is we're not, none of us are happy and we're all grumpy and ill and we're all afraid and stressed and all these other baggage on us, right? So I'd like to offer a suggestion. Doing it the way the world says you got to do it, it's not working out, is it? I'd say it's time that we give simple a chance. No matter what it takes to simplify your life, it starts with this simple commandment. Seek first the kingdom of God. You know what that means? You never allow anything to come before your commitment and devotion to God under no circumstances, non-negotiable. Nothing ever comes before your commitment to God, your devotion to God. So what does that mean? Hey, I'm accountable to God. I have a responsibility from God. To the people he's put in my life, to the things he's put put me in authority over, in charge over, I've got to do this because God has given me this privilege. God has given me this life. And nothing is ever going to get its way wedged between me and my God-given responsibility, my God-given accountability. I refuse to allow anything to come between my commitment to him and my devotion to him, whether it's from me or from this world. It's never worth it, never, ever, ever worth it. Anything you might gain always produces a much greater and more substantial loss. I don't, I don't know, I don't know where this lands with any of you today, but I think it hits all of us in some way. I think it hits harder than others on some of us. In the name of progress and goal achieving and making a name for ourselves, realizing our dreams, a lot of us have just become like the beasts that rule this world. We scrape and we claw and we hold tightly to whatever we feel makes us a somebody and gives us a sense of pleasure and purpose. But all along, we need something more. Jesus has opened the door to the kingdom of God. We can all come in, but we have to do so by admitting this world isn't worth it. And none of us are getting any better, any closer to God. It's been this way since Eden and Babel, and it's going to be this way until the end. So what is the solution? Seek first the kingdom of God. So what does seeking first include? It means you pray. You pray every day, often throughout the day. You pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. My kingdom go, my will go. Thy kingdom come. We pray and we serve because God says, hey, I've given you the life. I've given you the strength to serve. You serve, you love, you pour your life out for the people he's put in your life. You pray, you serve, and you invest. You invest your life in the kingdom of God. You invest your life in the kingdom of God. That God is building. You invest all that you are, all that you have, all that you can get your hands on. Pour it back into the kingdom of God. That's the only way you break the cycle and you break free. Jesus is the only one who's ever offered us a viable solution. We read it. It started in Genesis. It's going to keep going on until the end of time. He stood in front of Pilate, about to be killed. And he said, Pilate, I'm not afraid of your cross. Because that cross is just a pathway to my throne. And one day you'll be gone, Pilate. But forever and ever and ever, I will be ruling on the throne of God. All these years later, Jesus is our only hope. And the, the, the question over all of us today is, are we seeking the kingdom of God first and foremost? Only you know that answer. Only you know that answer. And only we can look ourselves in the mirror and say, am I putting God first? Am I putting God first? And by putting God first, am I putting first the things he says are most important? And and I gotta just say this. If that's not, if that's not the case for you, no matter what else you do, it's never gonna fall in line for you. 
it's just going to be one stumbling block after stumbling block after stumbling block. And I love you. I'm not saying this to say, oh, look at you. I'm just, hey, that's the reality we live in. Unless we seek first God in his kingdom, unless God is our king and his kingdom is most important, nothing else we are ever going to do is going to accomplish anything that satisfies our heart and our soul. So Jesus says, come to me. Repent of that way. Trust me with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Seek first my kingdom. And I'll take care of the rest. Let me pray for you. Lord, I know this lands on everybody's lap in different ways. There are people here that are super stressed out because of circumstances that are legitimate. There are people here, Lord, that just have so much going on in their life. They're not happy with this. They're not happy with that. They've made some decisions they don't know they can undo. And and Lord, I I don't know what everybody's going through, but I just know that, that you made it very clear that this world has always been in between or at this crossroads where people are following after your kingdom or they're following after some lesser kingdom. And every time we go down the kingdom of this world, every time we take that path, we just end up with regret. We just end up with baggage. We just end up with bondage. We just end up unhappy. But every time we repent and go down the kingdom of God and put you first, we find peace and joy and we find that what we cannot find in this world. So Lord, I know it's a lot of work to turn around a a giant ship that is already sailing down a certain path. It may take a lot of throwing off the extra weight and a lot of repenting and a lot of uh, turn, you know, a lot of backing up. But, but God, if that has to start somewhere, let it start today. If there's things in our lives that are just, are just not as they should be, our commitment, our priorities, our, our faith, our trust, our devotion, Lord, at some point, we've got to make us draw a line in the sand and say, today is the day I say I'm not going to keep doing this. Today is the day that I turn away from that. And I begin inch at a time, foot at a time, brick at a time, however you want to say it. Today's that I begin building towards the kingdom of God. Lord, you've made that way easy for us. You've made it simple for us. All we've got to do is say, Jesus, I'm sorry I've put everything in front of you. I'm sorry I've put the wrong things first. I want to put you first and I want to embrace my accountability, my responsibility. I want to embrace the calling over my life because there's nothing else worth it. There's nothing else that brings me the peace that you promise. Lord, we lay our lives at your feet. We pray you would give us clean hands, pure hearts, and lead us all to seek the kingdom first and foremost. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.